From National Public Radio in Washington, The American Scene. Commentaries by humorist and author Gene Shepard. Hi, gang. Now, I know I shouldn't tell you this story, but uh, I trust you. You're not going to pass it along where you heard this one, right? Well, the other day, I am visiting my friend Al. Now, he's a nice guy, and he's got this kid who just got out of high school a couple years ago, and uh, I walk into Al's house, and we have a drink, and I notice the kid is running around out in the backyard. Well, I said to Al, Al, what's the kid doing out in the backyard? And he whispers to me, he says, listen, he's rehearsing. He's rehearsing for his job. I said, what do you mean, rehearsing for his job? What's he doing? Is he an actor or what? He said, come on out in the back porch. You can listen to him. So we crept out in the back porch with our bourbon in our hands, and here's this kid, Clifford, running around out in the backyard wearing his blue coat. And I hear him, the first thing out of his mouth, I hear, all right, yo, in the car. We're going downtown. Get in the car. I said, for crying out loud. And then all of a sudden, he whirled around and he hollered, freeze, freeze, police, freeze. I said, gee, that's really terrific. Why, is he, is he an actor? Is he doing a show or something like that? He says, no, he just got a job on a police force. You don't do these things uh, without rehearsing them, you know. And I said, for heaven's sakes. Hey. I said, hey, Cliff, what are you doing over there? And he turned on me and he said, freeze, freeze. I said, gee, where's Clifford? <laughs> he really scared me. He's going to be a great cop. And uh, I, I asked Clifford later, and he said, listen, he said, one of the hardest things I've had to learn is to use the word perpetrator. He said, no person in his right mind, uh, you know, walking around human being ever uses the word perpetrator in ordinary conversation. Now the whole world is full of perpetrators. <laughs> Speaking of perpetrators, <laughs> oh, son of a God, you freeze. Get in the car. We're going downtown. Ooh, sends little chills right up your back, doesn't it? This is Gene Shepard. stories about cops, firefighters, those who sell door to door. Hollywood is replacing those professions, according to our new All Things Considered commentator, Gene Shepard, with heroes from their own backyard. Hey, listen, the other night I'm watching one of these little channels, you know, that's way down at the end of the dial in television with the big high numbers, and suddenly I found myself being vastly entertained. I mean, by this ancient movie. And I was trying to figure out why I liked that movie. It wasn't because it had a star that was famous or anything. It was just what the movie did. Here it was. It was Spencer Tracy. And what do you think Spencer Tracy was doing? He was a lineman. Spencer Tracy was a high-tension lineman. You know, the kind of guy that puts these high-tension wires around the country? It was really fascinating. And then I suddenly realized they don't make movies about people anymore. All the movies I have seen in the last year are about screenwriters. And they always have a wife who's an actress. Or they're about a Broadway writer whose wife has just left them and whose daughter wants to be an actress. Or they're about an actress who has fallen in love with a screenwriter and she feels rotten about that as well she might feel, uh, having seen some of the movies that some of these guys turn out. No wonder she's jumpy. But have you noticed that almost all movies now are about people who make movies? Peter O'Toole is a director. Uh, Dustin Hoffman plays an out-of-work actor. They don't make movies about guys that fix TV sets. Uh, yeah, and, you know, that would be very dramatic. In fact, I have a friend who does fix TV sets, and one day he reached into a TV set and he got his hand across the wrong terminals. His hair stood up, his eyeballs spun for three weeks, and his wife now claims that he's, he's gotten impotent as a result of this. Now, there is a plot. You know, the guy was attacked by a Sylvania. Uh, for National Public Radio, this is Gene Shepard. Gene Shepherd is a storyteller and actor whose observations will now be heard on All Things Considered. Consider that our early Christmas present to you. Hey, gang, how do you like a good swift uh, statistic now to get your uh, early evening off to a running start? How about this one? 36% of the people in the United States get no news of any kind. They don't watch television news, they don't listen to it on the radio, they don't read newspapers. What do they do? Do they just walk around the shopping marks and uh, pull uh, straws out of their ears? What is this? 
I mean, I don't understand it. And, and here, listen to this statistic. 60% of the people who do watch television news when queried recently by a national pollster said, well, it's just like any other show. He looks at it as a show, which, by the way, leads to another idea. Wait till the first guy in one of the big networks gets the thought that television news is just another show. Well, you know that a lot of people watch reruns endlessly, and they watch the same show over and over again. So wait till the first news department says, why are we paying all these people writing all the news? Why don't we have rerun news? How about, by request, tonight, Walter Cronkite and one of his favorite 1959 news shows. And he comes on, he talks about President Eisenhower, and uh, he discusses all those great, wonderful things of that period. It wouldn't make any difference. It's just another rerun. You know, like uh, I Love Lucy, after 400 years, is still on. Why not Walter? Why not uh, bring back John Cameron Swayze and the news? And he could come on and he could tell you all about President Truman. That would be really great, wouldn't it? This is Gene Shepard. I'm in rerun, too, on NPR. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's a nice feeling to know that you're a member of something, an academy, an organization, a nice family. Commentator Gene Shepard agrees, and he has an idea for a new group and would like to talk to all of you pickle lovers about it. Uh, I have a proposition for you. <laughs> now, I know that's a loaded word. Many of you get a little nervous when you hear the word proposition. It has all kinds of overtones. But I think you'll like this one. I'm sitting on a plane the other day, and you know how it is with those little three-inch seats that you sit on in planes? This guy is sitting next to me. He weighs 600 pounds. He's overflowing all over my seat. And you eventually have to say something to the guy that's sitting next to you on a plane, especially when it's a five-and-a-half-hour journey. Well, I, <laughs> I was looking for something to say, and I noticed he had a little pin in his lapel. And I said politely, uh, uh, Say, sir, what is that pin in your lapel? And he says, well, I'm a member of the, uh, of the Envelope Collectors Association of the World. And this is a little tiny gold envelope. I said, the Envelope Collectors of the World? What do you do? He said, well, we collect uh, envelopes of letters, you know, great envelopes from the past and the future and the present. And we have a newsletter and everything. And he looked very smug. Well, the drinks came, and I settled back in my seat, and I started to think, you know, Shepard, you are not in any organization at all. What's the matter with you? Everybody else is a member of something. You don't have a pin. You don't have a membership card. You don't get a newsletter. What kind of a clock are you? Well, first of all, Shepard, you've got to have something you believe in, that you love, and that has an organization. What do you love, Shepard? Well, the only thing that came to my mind is the only thing I truly love. Pickles. I love pickles. I really love pickles. Now, there must be a lot of you out there who love pickles and never talk about it. You love just the thought of pickles. Dill pickles, gherkins, bread and butter pickles. Oh, I love pickles. So I am proposing that we form an organization, and I have given it a name, IPLA. International Pickle Lovers Association. And we'll have a newsletter every week. And we'll have uh, great articles contributed by, say, cooks who make uh, oh, uh, bread and butter pickles. Maybe we'll even get an article from H.J. Hines himself, one of the great pickle men of all time, the Michelangelo of pickle men. And uh, we'll have uh, bumper stickers that say things like, uh, Ipla's Pucker Better. You kind of like that? And we'll have a pin, a little gold pickle. And we'll have officers all over the world. We have, we'll have chapters. Oh, I love those, those kosher gherkins. Oh, I love the kosher ones. Well, uh, all set? Would you like to join? Send your name and address just to IPLA, I-P-L-A, the radio station to which you are listening. They will forward it to me, and we'll get this ball rolling, and you'll be part of something. IPLA. <laughs> IPLA's pucker better. And uh, by the way, I don't have to remind you who's going to be president. Right? After all, I founded it. This is Gene Shepard, who at last has found his home, NPR.
This is All Things Considered. While publishers cultivate snob appeal in the magazine world, All Things Considered commentator Gene Shepard is finding what he calls slob appeal wherever he goes. Well, I had a really bad ex experience here about an hour and a half ago. I'm in one of these gigantic discount stores, you know, the ones with the gas pipe racks and they're selling tents over here and outboard motors over there and they have a drug department and they have a department where they sell uh, shoes and footballs and it's all, it stretches out for miles. Well, I go back way in the back of this store and they have a music department. Well, they had a big uh, bin full of uh, cartridges of one kind or another and I'm looking at them and I pick out a cartridge. I said, for crying out loud, I can't believe what I found. So I hot-footed up to the up to the checkout line, and there's a whole lot of people there, and I get in the line. I finally arrive up at the front, and this lady's got one of these little machines, you know, these little radar machines or whatever they have up there, laser machines, you know, the kind of go boop, 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 and she takes a look at my cartridge, and she says, oh, this is a cartridge. I said, yes, it is. And she reads the label on it, and she says, huh, batch. Is, is that a new group? I said, well, <laughs> no, actually, it's Bach. She says, Bach, I thought that was a beer. I said, well, no, it's, it's, he's a musician. She said, oh, well, I like heavy metal. I'll have to listen to that new group, Bach. That sounds really great. Well, within an instant, the entire line is looking at me. I'm the only guy for 400 miles around who ever heard of Johann Sebastian Bach. And I realize that I am a social pariah. Heavy metal is what I should have been buying. So now, at this point... I realize that I am truly out of step with my society. They have marched off in one direction, and somehow I missed the bus. This is Gene Shepard, who will continue to be a Bach fan, Batch fan, if you prefer, for National Public Radio. I don't know about you, but... Spring is the most exciting time of the year for me. I love spring. Some people go crazy over fall. Other people go bananas over winter for the skiing bit. I've never understood that. But spring. Ah, oh, spring. And I don't know what it is that, that pops out eternal in the human breast, but it's something at springtime. And you know one of my favorite little indications that spring has actually decided to come again, that life will be renewed, is way down at the bottom of the sport page, a little item says, pitchers and catchers report to Sarasota, or Melbourne, or Fort Lauderdale. Somewhere this very minute, the pitchers and the catchers are throwing balls through the cool air, and real sport is about to begin. You can't even remember who won or who lost the Super Bowl. But spring and baseball, it's all intertwined. The thwack of the ball into a mitt, and it's the time of year when every red-blooded American male begins to feel that itch in his hand, that hand that always was encased in a leather glove. You begin to feel that sting in both hands from a foul ball that you popped off the handle. Oh, I love spring. This is Gene Shepard. Dedicating this one to Thurman Munson, the great late New York Yankee. Someone once described Arthur Godfrey's voice this way. It's like a south wind blowing over a swamp full of dirty old bathtubs. And it was a voice millions of us came to know and to trust. He was the first to come into our homes as a friend. Godfrey was the first to just talk on the radio. He'd figured out that if two people were in a room together, they'd be talking to each other and not listening to him. Arthur Godfrey died yesterday in New York City. He was 79. He'd been off the air for about 20 years, winning a fight with lung cancer, but losing fights with the networks about returning to television or radio. For Gene Shepard, an all-things-considered commentator and radio veteran, Arthur Godfrey was a breakthrough performer, and that, according to Shepard, puts him in pretty good company. There was a writer in the 19th century who was a breakthrough writer. 
by the use of his language, by the use of his attitude, and by the use of his, the general beat and tempo of his work. And that was Mark Twain. Mark Twain was the first writer to break out of the 19th century matrix of writing. He was the first modern writer, really. You read Mark Twain today and he's alive. Well, Godfrey would be, in my book, the first modern media man, the first modern broadcaster. You know, I don't remember, I'm realizing, uh, radio before Arthur Godfrey. I remember Arthur Godfrey talking to me there in, in the kitchen, coming from wherever he was coming from, but I don't remember what radio was like but just before he was on. Well, you know, it's funny. I don't think many people do, uh, because radio before Godfrey was eminently forgettable. It was like, seriously, he created a medium that you listened to. You listened to Godfrey. You didn't just have it on. You see, prior to Godfrey's work, as far as I can tell historically, the whole concept of radio was basically ladies and gentlemen. Right. You know, there's this vast audience out there. Whereas Godfrey really created what we call today the modern style in broadcasting. The uh, television talk shows of today could be traced back to Godfrey. Well, uh, only Paley, uh, <laughs> if I may use William Paley's name. <laughs> Godfrey, Godfrey had so much uh, more juice in his work. Obvi obviously today, you know, uh, most of the talk shows that, that are on television are all based on showbiz. So uh, you'll hear Johnny Carson endlessly telling jokes about uh, uh, this guy at Las Vegas and that guy at Las Vegas and the usual California jokes and so on. Uh, whereas Godfrey didn't do that, you know. His humor was more about life itself. Uh, he, had a, he had an underlying sardonic view of things, and, and it came through. Years ago, when I was on late-night radio myself, Godfrey had an apartment in Manhattan, and Godfrey used to call me. The phone would ring, and he'd say, Godfrey here. And uh, <laughs> he, he, he'd say, Well, you weren't bad tonight, Shepard. I'd say, thanks, Mr. Godfrey. He says, that's right, it's Mr. And uh, he'd hang up. <laughs> he was truly a puckish character. I'll make one other comment about Godfrey and his style. There were a lot of people that, that, uh, that couldn't believe what they were hearing when they first heard Godfrey. Very controversial, by the way, I might add. That style, you mean? Well, not only his style, but his content. Uh, underlying Godfrey's work, a lot of times, there was all kinds of blue material. Uh, don't forget, he'd been a sailor. He'd been around. Uh, he was not. Uh, he was not Mr. Nice Guy. And uh, underneath it all, Godfrey did not hesitate to let you know there were things like sex in the world. Uh, guys drank. Uh, there were fistfights in bars. Uh, all kinds of things nobody talked about. And Godfrey was sitting there laughing, and you knew that Godfrey had tried them all. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. <laughs> he had. Uh, let's put it this way: he had blood. I get deeply personally involved in everything. And uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it. All I can say to you all now is thanks, stay well and happy, and I'll be seeing you. Seems like old times Having you to walk with Seems like old times having you to talk with and it's still a thrill just to have my arms around you still a thrill that it was the day I found you seems like old times dinner dates and flowers just like old times staying up for hours making dreams come true doing things we used to do seems like old times being here with you It's All Things Considered. We get a lot of letters here at All Things Considered directed at the comments of Gene Shepard. 
We direct those letters in turn to Mr. Shepard, which is fortunate because of his confessed addiction to the printed page. I am a compulsive reader. Now, I don't know where that started, and I sometimes envy people who can't read at all. Just think of all the things you miss, like uh, no U-turn, or uh, no parking here, or stop playing ball here on this beach, you bum. Now, if you, if you couldn't read, you wouldn't know all that stuff. You wouldn't know that you're constantly being admonished to straighten up and fly right. But I read all the time. And when I get on the subway, for example, and I don't have anything to read, I'm really nervous. I have actually sat on the subway and read the labels on the bottom of my rubber-soled shoes. I have cat's paw, by the way. I, I love to read that. I keep reading it over and over again. In the morning when I sit down at breakfast and I haven't got a paper, I read the back of uh, cereal boxes. I read uh, the label on snuff cans. Now, ask me how I happen to run into a snuff can. It's none of your business. But the other day, I'm riding in an elevator, and, of course, I get this terrible urge. I've got to read something. So I started to read that card, you know, the one that's in the little, the little frame inside with the glass over it? Have you ever read those cards, you know, that says, Inspected by uh, Inspector Gonzales? 1,500 pounds only allowed in this thing. I wonder if one fat guy gets in and it's overloaded. What do they do? Do they arrest the whole crowd or what? But anyway, I'm reading this thing, see? And down at the bottom, I see a, a, a big black letters. It says, notice, removal of this card is punishable by imprisonment. Holy smokes. And it said, Section A, 813-12. Now, that's official. Well, I'm standing in the elevator, you know, I'm going up 85 stories, and I start to have these, these fantasies where I can see me languishing in a cell, right? And there's my cellmate. And the cellmate looks over at me. He's this real tough guy, you know, with the black jowls. He says, what are you in for, buddy? I said, well, uh, I'm, uh, I'm in for, uh, well, I took this elevator card down out of the elevator in the Seagram building, and I tore it up, and I threw it away. And he says, What? You bum. Why do I always get the worst kind in my cell? Warden, get this guy out of here. <laughs> now, this is Gene Shepard for National Public Radio. This is All Things Considered. There's no better place for us to express ourselves than in a good old-fashioned football game. And now with the advent of the United States Football League, commentator Gene Shepard says fans can do just that year-round. I don't know whether many of you watch uh, football on television, especially Monday Night Football, you know, the one with Howard and uh, Giff and the guy that sings, The Party's Over, you know, all that great, exciting stuff. But have you noticed this proliferation of people who wear rubber faces to football games? What is that all about? I mean, what drives a guy to wear a rubber gorilla mask to go to see a football game? In fact, the other day I'm watching a game when, without warning, my entire screen in full color was filled with a picture of Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin. And uh, then the camera panned and there were three girls picking their teeth and couple of guys cheering, and then we went back out to the football game. And I wondered what a rubber Joseph Stalin was doing sitting there watching the football game. I would like to have Howard Cosell interview one of those guys to find out what made him wear a Joseph Stalin mask to a professional football game. I have seen Richard Nixon, a rubber mask, of course. I have seen, uh, <laughs> I have seen at least 30, 40 gorillas. The other day, I saw a crocodile sitting there watching a basketball game. Now, I, I don't know what subterranean urge there is to put on a rubber mask to go to a football game unless you're a scout for another team and you don't want to be recognized. Who knows? There's all kinds of chicanery everywhere you go. Uh, for National Public Radio, this is Gene Shepard wearing his uh, Ronald McDonald mask.
It is easy to take other people's advice about what to do and what to like, especially advice about movies. Commentator Gene Shepard, however, has never trusted the crowd. Yeah, I don't know what's the matter with my head. I, I don't know. I, I try to keep up with things, and I try so hard to be smart and intelligent and everything. And the other night, I bought a ticket for this giant Academy Award-winning movie, and I waited in line, and I bought the popcorn. I did the whole thing, you know. And I had this very intelligent date with me, and I went into the movie, and the movie started, and it was this tremendous blast of music. And it wasn't on the screen more than a minute and a half when my foot started to fall asleep. And five minutes later, I felt my mind wandering off somewhere out in the left field. And this was a very intellectual Academy Award righteous movie. This was a movie that everybody in the world is applauding. Why do I find it a colossal bore? Is there something wrong with my soul? Was there some important part left out of my psyche? Or are there others like me who secretly pretend they like a lot of stuff, but underneath it all, underneath their BVDs, their bottom is asleep while they're watching it? Huh? Come on, be honest just once. This is Gene Shepard laying it all bare right there on the table for National Public Radio. We are lucky here in the Northeast. The sun sunshine of spring is upon us. Not so in most places. Lots of new snow in the Rockies today, heavy rain in both San Francisco and the Great Lakes, and fog throughout the middle of the country. All things considered, commentator Gene Shepard, however, is looking ahead. Oh, this is a warning that I'm going to give you right now. And I think one of the things that uh, radio should do, it should perform a genuine public service. Like, give you warnings of things that are liable to happen to you that are bad. Now, what I'm going to do is warn you that summer is a coming in very shortly. It's on its way. Now, I know all the things you've got in your head. Uh, summer's going to come. I'm going to lose some weight, right? You have this in your head already? Uh, you're going to get a fantastic tan just this once. You're really going to get a tan. And this summer, you're going to buy one of those great summer suits that they always advertised and you know, these fancy uh, men's magazines, you know, the guys with the nice linens. So you're going to get one of those, huh? With a vest, it's going to be terrific. And uh, you're going to also play volleyball a lot on the beach like they do in the TV commercials. You know, all those crazies that are knocking that ball back and forth. They're going bananas. You're going to learn how to windsurf, too, right, all this summer? Uh-huh. And finally, you're going to cure the problem of that ridiculous backhand you've got, the one where you tried to use it the last three times and broke two windows. Well, you're not going to do it. That's Shepard's warning to you right now. You're going to blow another summer. You're going to sit there, and all of a sudden, it's going to be 4th of July before you know what happened. The next thing you know, it's going to be Labor Day, and then you'll be buying Christmas presents again. Your life is getting away. So get it together. Do it this time. Get that tan. Don't let those other people get ahead of you. And I want to see you out on the beach yelling and hollering and hitting the ball with a 15-inch waist and with all those beautiful women and drinking all that beer, right? It's going to be a great summer. We're going to do it this time. Just once, we're going to make it all the way. <laughs> this is Gene Shepard for National Public Radio. All Things Considered commentator Gene Shepard has a serious suggestion for American car makers. Learn from your own past. I'm riding along the street the other day, and I'm behind this car. Kind of nice-looking automobile. It was a J2000. A J2000. Next thing you know, I see an EXP go by me. And then an L7G. I said, for heaven's sakes, no wonder nobody's buying cars. How can you get excited over a car whose name is 2000 or EXP when they used to have such great names for cars? How many of you remember when they had cars named the Hornet? <laughs> I mean, you could see yourself leaping into your Hornet, a jet black Hornet, and going out into the night to rescue some blonde somewhere. You can't do that in a J2000. How about the, the Golden Eagle? Who made the Golden Eagle? Isn't that a beautiful name? And the Jackrabbit, the Apperson Jackrabbit. <laughs> How about this one? The Silver Dart. Oh, 
you can whistle through all time in a silver dark. One of my favorites is the Maybach Zeppelin. And by the way, it did look like a Zeppelin, which many cars do anyway, but they came right out and said it, and that gave them panache. <laughs> and then the Jordan Playboy, whose ad was fantastic. The Jordan Playboy had an ad that simply said, West of Laramie, there's a girl. And there was a picture of a girl with her hair flowing. How about the cord Corsair? And the tiny drawing on the side of the cord that was done in silver was a pirate with a, with a great cutlass in his mouth. Now that's a car. Had big pipes coming out of the side of it. You stepped into a car. You were at the controls. J2000 EXP, where are you going? We've lost all sense of style in our time, fellas. Gene Shepard is an actor and writer and car aficionado. did hold on as long as it could this year, it seems, and now at last it's time for summer travel and vacations, and as raconteur Gene Shepard reminds us, miles and miles of open highway. I just feel constrained to salute things that are specifically American because they mean so much to all of us in a very deep bone marrow sense. And this came to me the other night on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Now, I'm driving along in this beautiful new car. It's got everything, you, you, everything you'd want in a car. All those little green lights flashing off and on on the dashboard. It's got little buttons that you can control the windows with. It's got, you, know, you can even control the trunk with it. And it's got eight-track stereo and the music is playing. It's three o'clock in the morning. And you know that wonderful feeling. I've got my hands on this magnificent steering wheel and I'm burrowing through the night on an American turnpike with that darkness rushing up and all those little faint lights off in the distance going by and you're alone in your little space capsule when all of a sudden something deep within me said, you should have gone in Harrisburg. <laughs> oh, oh. And of course, once you start thinking about it, you, you really have to go. And I was in trouble. Oh, I'm squirming all over the front seat when suddenly out of the darkness way up ahead I see an orange glow. It's approaching through the darkness, and I know that safety and uh, blessed relief lies just ahead. Coming out of the darkness with that orange glow is a beautiful Howard Johnson. Three o'clock in the morning, and it hit me how American this is. How could you explain this, the Howard Johnson, to Yasser Arafat? Would he understand that moment at three o'clock in the morning out on a turnpike in the vast American night when you see that orange glow appear. And within seconds, I had whipped into the little slot there where it says parking for cars as opposed to parking for trucks. I pulled in, and there I was, lined up with other Americans in that moment of communion. So let us salute Howard Johnson for what it means to all of us at 3 o'clock in the morning in the dark soul of the night. This is Gene Shepard for National Public Radio. For listeners in this country, radio used to be the place where live drama and comedy programs were heard. That's mostly gone now, but hardly forgotten by commentator Gene Shepard. The other day I'm sitting in my dentist's office waiting in the waiting room there, and I'm going through the National Geographic, which is the only time I ever get a chance to see uh, uh, the National Geographic is when I'm in the waiting room of the dentist's office there. I can hear the screams of the wounded, and I'm looking at these ladies uh, sitting there in these uh, dugout canoes, and once in a while I hear him. He, he, my dentist, by the way, has a new, uh, uh, a new anesthetic. He uses this rubber mallet, 
and it's very effective. You just hear this thump and the scream stops. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm sitting there reading this dumb piece about old radio, and they always talk about the same stars of old radio. They always write about Jack Benny and Rochester. They always write about Fred Allen and Allen's Alley. But they never write about the shows that really affected me as a kid. For example, uh, how many of you remember this show? It used to come on with this phone ringing. And then this guy would say, uh, Duffy's Tavern, and this is Archie. Duffy ain't here. <laughs> All right, I'll ask you a bit of trivia. Who was the comic who created that show? They never write about him. And yet he was as big as bottled beer in his time. And then there was another show that would come on. You'd hear the, the sound of this guy knocking. You'd hear the knocking on the door like this. There's nobody home. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. Who was that? Who was the, the, the comic that created that character? He was a door-to-door -door salesman. And I used to sit there, I used to laugh so hard that after the show, I always had to change my pants. It was really great. Then, then there, was another <laughs> there was another show that came on that had as a featured character in it an undertaker. Now, how many comedy shows do you hear today that have an undertaker in them? And I'll give you a brass figlegi with bronze oak leaf palm if you can tell me the name of that character, the Undertaker. They also had a guy in that show that was the water commissioner. And the star of the show, as a matter of fact, was the mayor of a small town. And the show was a spinoff from Fibber McGee and Molly. Who played that character? The Great Gildersleeve. And what was the name of The Undertaker? <laughs> Don't know, do you? For National Public Radio, this is your archivist, Gene Shepard. At the convention of the American booksellers in Dallas earlier this month, there was talk of new trends in the industry like flexibooks, volumes that have a durable laminated cover that are neither hardcover nor paperback. But commentator Gene Shepard has heard about one idea that might be really big in the book business. I have a report from the literary front. <laughs> that sounds ominous, doesn't it? Well, I have this editor friend. In fact, he is my editor. His name is Harold. We'll call him that for argument's sake. He's been an editor for about 35, 40 years. He's edited all kinds of great classics and dumb books and all sorts of things. He really knows the literary scene. The other day, I sat down with Harold, and he had this very serious look on his face, and I knew something was coming up. And he says, listen, he said, i got to talk to you about what's happening in the literary world. I said, well, what is it, Harold? He said, well, forget novels. We're now truly in the period of illiteracy. Nobody reads novels hardly at all anymore. I said, well, what do they read? He says, well, are you ready for this? I said, I'm ready, Harold. He says, cookbooks. He says, cookbooks, diet books, books on jogging, and uh, anything that has the name handbook in the title. That's what they're reading. I said, what does this mean, Harold? He says, well, we've got feelers out already. He says, every literary guy in the business is going to be doing these soon. He says, we're looking forward to Norman Mailer's smash seller, the left-wing concerned Jewish cookbook. He says, how does this grab you, Shepard? John Updike's Suburbanite Splintered Family Goodies, especially his uh, non-involved divorce casseroles. Or uh, we have here coming up uh, Gloria Steinem's Liberation Snacks and her exciting editorial attacking carrots as phallic symbols. And how about Gore Vidal's Epicurean Expatriate Delights for filthy, rich, snobbish writers and readers, <laughs> written in bile and dripping with venom. And then, of course, we have uh, also on the books coming up in the season or two, Truman Capote's Joyous Fire Island Bonbons and his wonderful chapter on Catty Canapes. So, Shepard, get to work. I want to see a diet, sex, jogging cookbook with the word handbook in the title. We're expecting things from you, Shepard, and it's the best seller for you on the next go-around. Get to it. Hmm. <laughs> This is Gene Shepard for National Public Radio. Thinking.
Growing up in Hammond, Indiana, commentator Gene Shepard never yearned for exotic food. His tastes were simple. A quick hamburger is all he asked for. I must admit that I am a real sucker for fast food. Now, I know that's not a nice thing to say to all you serious-type alfalfa sprouts eaters and all you people who go for yogurt all the time, but I really secretly like fast food. Of course, I was weaned on Twinkie, so no wonder. But uh, the other day, I'm, I'm sitting in this place enjoying a Big Mac and uh, thinking deep thoughts, when suddenly it hit me that almost all of these things have a certain uniformity of taste. You know, the Big Whopper, the Big Mac, they're all, they're all almost the same except for the names. But there is one spectacular difference, and it's right out of my childhood. I had these deep, warm memories of my old man running up the back porch at 6 o'clock at night, and uh, he comes into the house, and he opens his tie. It's been a hot day at the office, and he looks around. He says, look, let's eat out tonight. And my mother looks up from the, uh, looks up from the uh, stove and says, oh, yeah, let's eat out tonight. My kid brother starts to jump up and down and yell. And then the old man says, I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's go out and grab a sackful. That meant only one thing, the White Castle. And their great slogan, buy them by the sack. And ten minutes later, we'd be piling out of the olds to go into the White Castle, which has a very special ambience. First of all, there's all that white tile. And then they used to have a thing called the White Castle Family News, which was about White Castle guys all over the country. You know, White Castle Number 7 in Greenville, Ohio, uh, Oski, uh, uh, Hop Noodle just got married, you know, that kind of thing. And we'd sit there and we'd eat those luscious little White Castle hamburgers. They're about the size of your thumb. They're square. And they have a unique taste, a special taste, like uh, Greek olives uh, nibbled at dawn on one of the Aegean islands. They are unique. Uh, this is Gene Shepherd. <laughs> oh, boy, that sounds good, doesn't it? For National Public Radio. It sure does. This is NPR, National Public Radio. You never know when you're going to relive your childhood. Consider what recently happened to commentator Gene Shepard. Without any warning, in the middle of the afternoon in little town in Massachusetts, I discovered that I am the master of a lost art form. <laughs> I had no idea till this moment. I walked into, a, 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 you know, these kind of little chotka stores. You know what a chotka store is? Uh, a, a little store that sells gifties, uh, you know, uh, they have uh, uh, peanuts, uh, greeting cards, and all that kind of stuff. And I wandered in there just to kill some time. And there on a shelf was a big box of tops. Now, I'm not talking about yo-yos. I'm talking about real wooden tops, the kind with the sharp spike point. And each one came with a string and a button. Well, I walked over. I says, hey, tops. I haven't seen a top in a long time. And I walked over to these tops, and I picked up a, a yellow one, beautiful little yellow top, and I just could not keep my hands off it. And this lady who was running this shop, you know, these little uh, official-looking ladies in Massachusetts towns that uh, has the iron-gray hair, and you have a feeling she also does watercolors in her spare time. Anyway, she uh, came wandering over, and she said, uh, oh, those are tops. I said, yes, I know. And I proceeded to take the string, wound the top up, and with a flick of the wrist, I set that top shooting out across the floor. They had these beautiful tile floors, and that top landed as beautifully. If you ever want to see a top land right on the little spike point, and it spun, and she stood there with her mouth hanging open. She says, that's how they work. I said, what do you mean, that's how they work? She said, we've had hundreds of people come in and say, how do you use these things. She said, you're the first one I've ever known who could actually use one. How do you do it? I said, well, it's a talent that I learned at the age of six. I have never forgot. It's like bicycle riding and sex. Once you learn, you don't forget. And she just absolutely was amazed. And with, within moments, there were dozens of people watching me, Shepard, standing in the middle of a little shop in Massachusetts, whipping that little yellow top all over the floor. I said, watch me lay it right down over there, right next to the fern. 
And I knew then that I was the master of a form that few know how to, how to deal with. Any other top people out there? Let's hear from you. There's just a few of us left. But, oh, ain't it sweet. This is Gene Shepard for National Public Radio. It's private memories that make holidays special, moments apart from preordained parades and speeches. Storyteller Gene Shepard recalls such a moment when the world engraved itself deeply upon him. He was five years old. I can recall being out in the backyard of our house, and it was the 4th of July. And I knew it was the 4th of July because people were shooting off firecrackers and everything all around me. When all of a sudden there was this deep rumble in the air, and it was hot. This was outside of Chicago in northern Indiana. And when it's July in northern Indiana, the heat comes rolling down those long prairies like a vast tidal wave of nothing but pure misery, bringing with it millions and billions and trillions of mosquitoes. And you can smell the lake about maybe three or four miles to the north with its dead perch and its detergent coating. Anyway, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon and hot, and I'm a kid. I'm out there in the backyard fooling around with a clothespin or something, when all of a sudden there's this deep rumble in the air, just a sort of rolling sound. And it sounded like something coming closer. And people started to come out of their houses. I remember Mrs. Bruner next door in her apron coming out. She weighed 400 pounds. And she came thundering out on the back porch looking up. And my mother came out. They were hearing this thing, too. When suddenly, over the top of our house, it seemed to come, was this fantastic silver shape. It covered the whole sky. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And it just slowly drifted over the backyards of Indiana. It was this tremendous dirigible, or do you prefer dirigible? It was one of the great zeppelins of the world making a visit to Chicago for the 4th of July. Chicago was about 30 miles north of us. And this magnificent thing just hung in the air. It looked like it stretched from the horizon to the horizon. You could see the flashing silver propellers and just the deep throb, boom, 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 of its engines. It was truly a magical sight. It was like seeing a great silver gossamer yacht or something in the air. And then a few firecrackers went off and somebody shot off a, a skyrocket that looked unbelievably puny with that great silver beautiful thing drifting over us. And ever since that time, that has always been the fourth to me. The, the silver shadow drifting over Chicago and the cornfields of Indiana in the tremendous heat of July. <laughs> this is Gene Shepard for National Public Radio. things considered, commentator Gene Shepard is less concerned with the height of people's lawns than what people put on them. One time when I was in college, I had this book that I had to read for an assignment, you know, the kind that you just barely can get through. But one line stuck out and has remained in my mind ever since. It's about the only thing I can actually remember learning in college. In this novel, the writer said that that brief moment between night and and full dawn, everything comes clear to the human mind. And you know, this is true. I actually had that happen to me the other night, or the other morning, or the other dawn, or the other instant. <laughs> what is it, that moment between dawn and sunrise and night and, and blackness? I'm driving along in my car through a little town in Jersey, Hackensack, actually, at these little lawns, you know, these little houses, and it's just about getting to be dawn. I'm the only car on the road. And suddenly there is a red light telling me to stop. I'm the only car. So I stopped. And I could hear the stoplight ticking. You know, they tick when there's no traffic noise or any other kind of noise. They go sort of a tick, 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 like some kind of a secret electronic bomb. This thing was ticking away. And all of a sudden I said to myself, why am I stopping for a light bulb? This light bulb has commanded me to stop. I'm, I'm, I'm a machine. And I continued to sit there. 
Such is the ingrained reliance on law in Western man. And then I became aware that something was looking at me. I felt eyes peering at me. I looked over my shoulder, and there over on a lawn, off to my right, was this figure standing on the lawn in the gloom, in that curious moment when all things come clear to the mind. And they sure did. It was a concrete Mexican standing on the lawn, and he was wearing a little concrete hat, you know, the kind, the big sombrero, and he had a concrete serape, and he was leading a concrete donkey. And he just looked at me with a big smile, a concrete Mexican on a lawn in Hackensack. Well, the light turned green, I put the car into first, and I started to crawl out, moving away across the intersection, and I could feel his eyes following me down the street. And then I had this sudden insight. I think we're the only people in the world to put concrete people on their lawns, especially concrete Mexicans. And then I thought, again, a little further jump in thinking, I could see a little adobe hut outside of Mexico City, and right there next to the cactus, and uh, right next to the great big uh, brass pot that they have next to the front door, is a little concrete New Jerseyite standing there in front of his concrete pinto, holding a concrete martini, a, a salute to the fellow American, wherever he might be, north, south, or central. <sighs> that moment between dawn and night, the mind evolves clear images of what is. Be careful. Sleep through it, or you're liable to get into trouble. This is Gene Shepard for National Public Radio. series underway, there is at least one baseball fan who is not rooting for the Baltimore Orioles or the Philadelphia Phillies. Commentator Gene Shepard's favorite team almost made it to the series, but he takes comfort that the Chicago Southsiders are, if nothing else, consistent. The White Sox have a park that looks like a cave that was stolen from Kentucky. And late at night, you can smell the remains of what used to be the stockyards drifting in over second base. Well, year after year after year, I followed the White Sox, just like my father before me. And year after year, the White Sox, at the end of the year, were sixth place, fifth place, once in a while, second place, oh, rarely, most likely eighth, ninth place. And if there were tenth and fifteenth places, they would have been there. The White Sox got into the league playoff this year, and I'm delighted to report that my stable rock on which my life is based is still inviolable. They booted it. Booted it, booted it, booted it. In fact, their top slugger stood there with the bat on his shoulder and watched three strikes go by him three consecutive times at the plate. A classic White Sox clutch performance. Made me feel warm watching it. Incidentally, when was the last time the White Sox ever won the World Series? Well, I'll tell you. Baron von Richthofen, the Red Baron, had just completed his 60th victory over the Western Front. The year was 1917, and after that point, generation after generation of failure, sparked only by the Black Sox. The White Sox, you know, are the only team that were ever actually proven to have thrown a World Series. And my father, who lived on the south side of Chicago, back of the yards, claims that as a child, he was actually outside the ballpark when shoeless Joe Jackson, the famous Chicago White Sox outfielder of the period, was heard to say to the crowd, I'm sorry, at which point a little urchin leaped out of the crowd and uttered a phrase which has entered baseball lore. He said, say it ain't so, Joe. My old man claims he heard it. He was there apocryphal or not. So today I feel sound and solid. The basic stability of my life remains. The White Sox did not get into the World Series again this year, and I for one am glad. 
For National Public Radio, this is Gene Shepard. I'm sure you've noticed the department store windows are already being decorated, and now movie theaters across the country are getting into the holiday spirit. Today's the opening of A Christmas Story, a film based on Gene Shepard's novel, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. It's set in Midwest America in the 1940s and tells the story of little Richie Parker's desperate quest for a special Christmas present a genuine Red Ryder 200-shot Daisy air rifle, a BB gun that Gene Shepard says is still on the market today. The Red Ryder has been <laughs> the Daisy's number one seller for years and has sold in all the Kmarts all over the country. Mm. It's sold at Sears, and uh, uh, every kid knows it because it has that leather thong. That's right. That's, that's attached right. to the stock, I mean. Uh. I remember Christmas Day and the week thereafter, going out into the woods with a brand new Christmas BB gun and having, and, and doing what, you know, what your mother was afraid you were going to do with it, just having fights, really, with a BB gun. <laughs> is that in the movie? No, uh, that's not in the movie. It, the, the, what the movie is about is about him getting the gun. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a movie about obsession. And like I've always felt that obsession of all types is the ultimate form of humor. Uh, I've always felt that Ahab was was really funny. <laughs> I know it's not. <laughs> I see it as basically a comedy, but uh, I've always felt that obsession of one kind or another is funny, and of course this is what this kid is obsessed with, getting a gun, and he just gets to be a true banana head about it. <laughs> We're talking about Ralphie, and Ralphie is you as a very uh, young person. How old? Seven, eight, nine years old? About nine. About nine. Are you in the film? Are you the narrator of the film? Well, the narrator isn't the narrator in this film. He's a, he's a, it's a role. He is an off-camera actor. He is Ralph grown up. Mm -hmm. And he's not describing the scene. He reacts to the situations, and when he grows up, he grows up to this kind, be this kind of an adult. He has to set the tone. Mm -hmm. And he, as a matter of fact, most of the laughs in the movie are uh, laughs that are engendered by something that the narrator says or his reaction to a scene. We have some, um, <laughs> what do you call these, publicity stills, I guess, from the movie? And uh, this is my favorite already when I first saw it. A picture of Ralphie and some of his uh, friends, and they are standing around. It's cold, it's winter, it's snowing. They are standing around what I presume is a uh, iron pole. No, that's a flagpole. A flagpole, right, okay. In front of the school. In front of the school. and The Warren G. Harding School. Okay, I think the audience <laughs> knows what's going to happen here. This was a scientific experiment. The premise had been tossed out by Schwartz. The kids are going to school. It's the Midwest. The temperature is five below zero. The wind is screaming off of Lake Michigan at a 40-mile-an-hour gale. It is about to snow. It has snowed for the past month. Schwartz says to his friends, you know, my uncle says that if you put your tongue on a, on a streetcar track or something metal in the cold like this, your tongue will stick to it. Well, of course, any scientific theory is going to bring out the uh, scoffers. It's going to bring out the believers. So immediately Flick says, oh, come on, what does your uncle know about anything? That bum. And there's a big argument develops, and finally they arrive in front of the flagpole, and uh, at that point Schwartz says, well, if you're so smart, if you don't believe it, why don't you try it? Flick says, all right, I will. I'll show you how stupid that is. He approaches the pole, places his tongue on this iron flagpole, and instantly is frozen solid. There's only one thing for the rest of the people to do. What, run away? Get out as fast as you can. <laughs> Start running. <laughs> <laughs> and there's this tiny figure on the horizon with the wind blowing, oh. forever attached to a flagpole. Oh. <laughs> Humorous Gene Shepard. His new movie is called A Christmas Story. This is the age of the slogan, so says All Things Considered commentator Gene Shepard, who thinks enough is enough. Hey, why is it, gang, uh, every time I see one of these bumper stickers that say, have you hugged your child today, 
I, I feel the hair on the back of my neck go up. It really bugs me. I mean, that's really smug. Have you hugged your child today? Like me, I'm such a beautiful person. I have hugged my child today. Of course, now they've got all kinds of them, like, have you hugged your horse today? Well, I've had horses in the past, and many horses I know, if you hug them, you're liable to get a hoof right down the larynx. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I saw one the other day that really blew my cork. It said, uh, I, with the little heart in the middle, I love Scranton. Oh, chauvinism. That's so sickening. George Follinsby Babbitt, he'd love that. Do you love uh, dismal seepage, Ohio? You know, it's got to go even further than that, these egotistical bumper stickers. You know, everybody believes that everybody else in the world wants to know about their hang-ups. I mean, there are particular hang-ups. For example, I see the day when there's going to be one that says, uh, I love, with a little heart in the middle, of course, I love martinis. Extra dye with just a little whiff of vermouth. Uh, make it uh, Boodle's gin. Or uh, perhaps, uh, I love bourbon, neat, with a twist of lemon. Oh, I really love that. Sh I love short, fat blondes. I love cheese sandwiches with pickle relish, little mustard on the side. For God's sakes, who cares what you love, Fred? I don't care. One guy finally said it the other day. I saw one that said, I love me. Now, that's truth, which reminds me, I just love me. This is Gene Shepard with a little heart in the middle. I love NPR. You've been listening to a selection of commentaries by Gene Shepard, originally broadcast on NPR's daily news and information program, All Things Considered. This is NPR, National Public Radio.